How are you all doing? Good, good. And I trust that all who are uh, watching from online are doing uh, well also. Uh, we are uh, having a, a bit of a, a break here in Romans as we have made it through seven chapters. Um, and we decided uh, as, uh, as, as your elders uh, that Romans 8 is just too great uh, for us to start right now and then just cut off uh, for Christmas and, and, and so on. No offense to Christmas uh, and, and to Thanksgiving and all of that, but it's, it's Romans 8 for crying out loud. And, uh, and so we said, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait until next year. Oh, no, go ahead. You can, you can go ahead. This is this is a safe space. This is a safe space. Yeah, we, we decided that we're going to um, wait until next year uh, to jump in, Lord willing, uh, into uh, Romans 8. Uh, I just want to encourage all of you, uh, if you have never meditated on Romans 8, this is your head start. Okay, so get in Romans 8, verse 1, going all the way to verse 39, and, and just meditate on it, soak it in. It's a great uh, 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 chapter, perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible. And, and you will read it, and I, I, uh, uh, I promise you, uh, you will be blessed. Uh, and maybe your life won't be the same. Uh, because of the time that you spend in there. So definitely meditate on that. But we will come back to Romans, Lord willing, next year, 2022. Uh, and uh, we're just going to have a wonderful time, not only in chapter 8, but as we go through uh, the remainder of uh, Paul's letter here. But this seems like a good time for us to step back and say, what just happened? Right? We, we spent the lion's share of 2021 in this letter. And it's easy for us, by the time we get to this point of the letter, it's 16 chapters, and we've spent nearly a year in the first seven chapters. And I can imagine that there are some of you here in October that can't remember what we talked about in chapter one. Uh, again, this is a safe space. Raise your hand if you remember our first sermon in Romans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's been a while since we've been in Romans, it's, uh, since we've been in chapter 1. It's been a while. But, but this is a good time for us then to say, let's, let's put the car in park a little bit. In fact, let's put the car in reverse. And let's go all the way back and let's just do a little bit of a flyover so that we can remind ourselves of where we've been. And we could, maybe by God's grace, stir up a passion and an excitement and anticipation for where we're headed. Uh, in this letter uh, as we study it together. This is a fantastic letter. It's one of uh, the greatest letters ever written, not just ever written in the Bible, ever written, period. Uh, and uh, and granted, uh, you know, the, the stats are padded a little bit because we're in the age of memes. And, uh, well, you know, our, our, our letters aren't exactly getting any better as time is going by. But, but this is one of the uh, uh, most life-changing letters that you could ever read. Why? Because it's here that we read of God's grace towards sinners. That the great God who created all that you see, look around, look around. You see humans, right? You see grass, you see uh, fog colors, and, 
and you see the golden false sun and all, all the God who made all of this took the time to notice you and your need and said, I love you too much for you to suffer my wrath forever. Come here and enjoy my grace for all of eternity. This letter unpacks how that was even possible. Okay? So we're going to look at the first seven chapters, and we're just going to refresh our memories and hopefully uh, remind ourselves and even our hearts of why this God is the one and only who is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. So let me pray, and then uh, we're, go we're just going to jump right in, and we're going to have some fun uh, going down memory lane. All right, let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Not only that you have given us uh, a Savior, which you have in your Son, our Lord Jesus, uh, but you've also written the realities and the truths of this Savior and this salvation to us so that we could remember this. So we could set our minds and our hearts on these truths. We could live in them. So, Father, I pray that what we learn here would never uh, slip out of our memories. It would never slip out of our focus. It would never slip into the periphery, or even worse, that we forget them all together. Lord, I pray that we would remind ourselves of these things. You, the great and only God, exalted in the heavens loves sinners. Sinners like me. You have decided in all of eternity to set your love and your affection on us. Make us your own through the death and the resurrection of Christ our Savior. May it never get old. <laughs> Lord, may this be the joy of our hearts. May we love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. We thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to, uh, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's, that's the key thing here. Set apart for the gospel of God. We, if, if you've been around in church for a while, you are familiar with the language gospel. Gospel uh, is uh, the Greek word euangelion. We get our word evangel or evangelical is uh, rooted in that word as well. Uh, you have angel in there, which just simply means messenger or, or in this case, a message. And then you have the prefix uh, eu, like a eulogy, for instance. If you are eulogizing somebody at their funeral, you're saying something good about them. You're giving a good word of that person in that person's life. If you uh, want to try to 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 clean something up so that it's not as controversial. You, you use a euphemism, all right, uh, and, and so on. It, the word just means, the prefix just means good. So this is a good message. This good message of God at the heart of the, of the letter to Romans is this good word that we have, this good news, this good message of God. 
What is it? Well, we see here, this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So you read the Old Testament, and as you read, you get these little uh, hints, right? These little clues. Something's coming. God's about to do something. God's up to something in the world and in history. We do not worship a God of deism, the God who creates the world. And as the old adage goes, he kind of winds it up like a clock and sets it. And then he goes off on vacation and the world by faith just kind of runs its course and does its thing. That's not the way the scriptures teach. Rather, we have a God who is very much active in the world, a God who never leaves the world aloof, who never leaves it to do its own thing, but a God who is very much working in this world, accomplishing his purposes as he is foretold through the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. And he's talking here concerning, verse 3, his son. At the heart of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, at the heart of the Bible is the Son of God. We are a believer in a God who is not deistic, but a God who's very much active in the world. We also are not just simple monotheists in the sense that we believe that there is one God who is one being in one person, but rather we are a Trinitarian monotheistic culture and, and, and church. In other words, we believe that there is one God, this Godness, if you will, this essence of God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe that God has a Son, and He has written all through the Scriptures to give us clues and hints about this Son. It leads us to the question, why in the world did He send His Son? We'll talk about that in just a bit, but that's the good news. The good news is that God has a son, and he sent his son, okay? So, concerning his son, who was descended from David, that's according to the flesh, uh, humanly speaking, he comes from the line of David, that was prophesied in uh, uh, passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the covenant that God gave to David, and he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, that's the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. When did he do that? By his resurrection from the dead. Okay, so this son came, this son obviously had to become a human if he's going to die, and then he laid that body down in death, and then God raised him up from the dead, and when God did, he declared him for all the universe to know, son of God in power, that's him. And not only that, but in Philippians 2, it says that God gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you were reading that with the Old Testament in mind, you would hear, Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. How in the world could you declare a human Yahweh, how could you give him the name of the only God except that he is God? Any other way, the Jews would be absolutely correct in the Gospels when they said he speaks blasphemies. It would be blasphemy if it weren't true. But because he is the very Son of God, demonstrated in his death and in his resurrection, he is the Son of God. And for everybody to see, the whole world is on notice this one is the only one that can save us. This is the good news. Who is he? Verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who he is. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom, Paul says, we have received grace. So it's through Jesus that grace comes to us and apostleship. He is a part of a group of people that God has tasked uh, 2,000 years ago to take this message through all of the ends of the earth. To tell everyone as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus that he is exactly who he says he is. Show them that he fulfilled the scriptures. Show them that show everybody that the prophets were absolutely right. And he is here and he has come and we must trust in him. And they have entrusted this word over the generations to you and to me. So that now we have the task to take this good news to our locations, to our communities, far beyond anything that the apostles had as they were serving in the Middle East. We get the opportunity to take the gospel to Raleigh and to take it throughout the triangle and to go throughout our country and even go to the ends of the earth telling everybody the very message that God gave them, Jesus is the risen Lord. Are y'all here this morning? Okay, because I'm, I'm, I'm having fun and we haven't even made it five verses. Yeah, so we're, this is going to be wow. The sun may set, so feel free to use the bathroom, you know, and everything along the way. I uh, hope you brought a bag lunch because we're going to be here. All right. So it says we receive grace and apostleship. Verse five. Now listen to this: to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. That's the end game. That's the end game. Okay? Why did God prophesy through the prophets? Why did he send his son? Why did his son rise from the dead? Why did his son dispatch apostles and future generations of Christians to go to all of the ends of the earth with this message? What, what is the end game in all of this? Let me read it again. The end game is, verse 5, Bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's the goal. The goal is that people from every tribe, every nation, every language would gather together in the obedience of faith. And that God's name would be magnified and glorified through this people who unite in the obedience of faith. Well, that leads us to the question, what's the obedience of faith? What is this, and why is it such a big deal? Well, there are two ways that we can understand obedience of faith. Okay? We can understand the obedience of faith as the obedient response of faith, or we can understand this as the obedient result of faith. Here, here's, the difference. here's the difference. The obedient response to the gospel is faith. Understand, when I tell people the gospel, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the third day so that if you believe in him, you will be saved from the wrath of God, saved from your sins. You will be saved to live for him forever. What I'm saying in that is, believe this. Believe it. Turn from your sin. 
Turn from your own man-made ways of saving yourself. Turn from the distractions. Turn from all of these things and turn to Jesus. I'm, I'm commanding you to do that. It, there's, a, there's a command in the gospel, a summons in the gospel. Come to Jesus and be saved. And when you trust that the gospel is true and that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, you are uh, uh, engaging in the obedience of faith. In the sense that you are obediently responding to the gospel in faith. That's the first option. Second option is this, having come to faith in Jesus, now your life starts to produce the effects of the gospel. You start loving people more. You start having a heart and a tenderness for others. You, you, you have a heart that is connected and sensitive now to the things of God, and you worship him. You didn't worship him before, but now you realize all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above, with whom there is no shifting or turning or any shadow of that. Lord, I, I come to you. You are my Father. You're my Abba, and I love you, and you care for me. Thank you so much for all the blessings that you have given to me. I live my life for you, and I say no to sin because I love you more than I love my sin. That is the obedient response of faith. Here's what I think. I think it's both. I think the obedience of faith is both responding to the gospel obediently in faith and resulting, uh, my life resulting from that faith with obedience. It's both and. Okay? This is what God wants from us. This is what he's after. This is the end game. There would be a people that would respond to him and what he has done in Christ in faith, saying, I trust Jesus wholeheartedly for my salvation. I trust Jesus to be my righteousness. I trust Jesus to be my one and only hope. I look nowhere else. It is Jesus or I die. And then say, because I put my trust and my hope wholeheartedly in Jesus, I must now live in total confidence that he's got me by loving one another and serving one another, laying down my life to sin and living wholeheartedly for him and caring for the people that are around me. That's, that's what this is. Okay? That's the end game. The question is, how do we get to the end game? How does the gospel produce this? How does the gospel produce the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations? Now, I know that that's a, the, one of the main questions in Romans because the way that Paul begins this letter is also the way that he ends the letter. So, let's look at this. Flip to the back of the book, the back of the letter, chapter 16. Romans 16. It's so much fun in October because I can't tell if I'm hearing the pages of Scripture or if I'm hearing the leaves rustling. It's, it's probably both. It's pretty cool. Romans 16. When you're there, stand there. Yeah. All right, now listen to his doxology at the end. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known 
to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, check this, to bring about the obedience of faith. There it is again. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And by the way, do you notice the connection also that the obedience of faith is connected to God's glory? So first, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And now here, bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. God has purpose to glorify himself in and through humanity by means of the obedience of faith. Okay? So as the gospel produces this obedience of faith among us and among all nations, God is glorified. God is magnified as the one God, the only God who is both our source and our standard. God who is our, the only one that we look to for everlasting joy. God is the one who is magnified when we go about the obedience of faith. So how does this work? How does God do this? How does the gospel produce this? Well, this is where we get into chapter 1. Because there's something wrong in society. There's something wrong with every single one of us. We don't naturally uh, uh, pursue the obedience of faith. It doesn't come naturally to us. Why? Because every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us is broken. At the heart of every single problem that we have in this world is something called sin. And sin is, by definition, the opposite of the obedience of faith. Sin is me saying, I don't want to obey the Lord in trusting in him. I don't want to trust in him. I don't want him, I don't want to give him credit for anything in my life. That's what chapter 3 talks about when it says that we fall short of the glory of God. Or more literally, we lack the glory of God. We are devoid of the glory of God. We defraud God in our lives. We say, God, yeah, I woke up this morning. Yes, I'm taking a breath. Yes, my heart is pumping. Yes, my brain is functioning. Yes, I was able to get from home to here this morning. Yes, I'm married. Yes, I've got kids. Yes, I've got so many joys in this life. And you get none of the credit for that. It's all me. I am the one who should be congratulated for being such a smart and mildly attractive guy. Right? I am. No, 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 no. No speaking out, Mrs. Locke. You know, keep, keep, that, keep those thoughts to yourself. Uh, I, I am the one <laughs> who should who should be congratulated. I am the one, you know, who, who's at the center of all of this. It's because of my smarts. It's because of my ingenuity. I get the credit. And God is furious over that. Because we are saying to the creator, the creature is better than you. The creature gets the credit, not the creator. So Romans 1, 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because we take the truth and we push it, we, we shove it out of our periphery, we, we move it out of the way and say, it's not about God, it's not about his glory, it's about anything else. It's about college football, it's about you know uh, uh, TikTok, right? It's, it's about anything else but God. 
We suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them, verse 19 says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Why? For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know what they became? They became idol worshippers. You know what we say and what we call that in our culture today? Materialists. That's what we became. When we're stressed out, we don't go to God, we go to Instagram. When we're upset and everything, we don't go to God in prayer, we go to Twitter. You know, when, 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 I, when I feel like I don't belong or anything like that, I go to the Apple store. Go buy a few more things. You know, this is what we do. You know, when I, when I feel like, like, uh, uh, like, like I, need, I need hope and, and, and all that, I, I, well, I don't personally turn on football because my personal football team gives me absolutely no hope in this world. But, but, but some of you, you know, you go to your sports and, and you get, you know, and you go, ah, oh, I feel so much better. You know, the Braves are one win away from the World Series. Woo, let's go, you know, and all that. Then that's where you find your hope. There, all of these things, it doesn't matter how you fill in the blank. If God is not in that blank, you are exactly what he's talking about. The wrath of God is on is revealed from heaven. He says, I am God, and I should be your greatest joy. And because I am your greatest joy, I should be your treasure. I should be your one and only hope. And you are deceiving yourselves, going anywhere else looking for hope. And I think Paul is saying here, there's no way that we can bring about the obedience of faith until first this changes. And let me go even further. There is no changing of society until this changes. Racism is an issue, but it's not at the heart of the issue. At the heart of the issue is there is a God in heaven who's not being worshipped. Okay? Uh, 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 injustices in our society, mistreatment of the poor and, and, the, and the underprivileged is an issue, but it's not at the heart of the issue. At the heart of the issue is there's a God who's not worshipped as he ought to be worshipped. Uh, uh, abuse of women and children is an issue, but it's not at the heart of the issue. At the heart of the issue, there's a God in heaven who is not being worshipped. Why do I say that? Because if we don't have the, the correct understanding of who God is, and we don't see ourselves in faith, trusting in him as the great and only wise God, there is no way that we will value his creation as good gifts from God. We will turn inward, and we will worship ourselves, and say, I'm at the center of everything, and at the heart of racism, at the heart of abuse, at the heart of injustice, and all of that is, I'm at the center, and you are nothing. That will not change until there is a fundamental reorienting of our hearts towards God. The wrath of God is on us because we, as it shows on display in so many different ways, we have rejected our creator and we've decided to worship the creature instead. And the ultimate creature that we can think of is me, myself, and I. Well, that, of course, we look at pagan society and we go, yeah, get them, Paul. Yeah, we're all, you know, all of y'all got issues. But we over here, I grew up in church. 
And I got Bible verses that I've memorized and everything. And I know about the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Bible. Yeah, I learned that when I was four years old. Those folks over there, they're pagan. You know, but we over here, we're okay. No, see, that's why chapter 2 is written. Because chapter 2, Paul says, okay, I want to talk to y'all who think that y'all are all good because y'all got the Lord, the, the Bible and all of this and you grew up in church and everything. Look at 2.17. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, he's speaking specifically to the Jewish people here, but their situation is very similar to the situation that I just mentioned. You rely on the law, you boast on God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others. Uh, do you teach yourself? Hmm. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, uh, what, what about you committing adultery? You who abhor idols, you rob temples. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, what he's saying is this. You may look at other people and you may say, boy, those folks are surely under the wrath of God. And, and here I am, and I'm just a little bit better than them, and therefore I've got a better standing with God than they do. Because I'm a bit better than they are. But remember, the end game is the obedience of faith the obedience of faith. And so if you're trusting in your own goodness and your own righteousness because you've kept God's word faithfully, or at least in your eyes faithfully, and so on, but you haven't trusted in him and you haven't kept his word perfectly, Paul says you are just as much under the wrath of God as a person who has obeyed none of it. Let me say that again. You may be standing next to somebody who has uh, kept none of the commands of God. And you go, ooh, you're going to get it. And you look at yourself, you say, well, I'm good because I've kept like three of the commands of God. But God is not judging on the basis of the commands that you've kept. He's judging on the basis of the commands that you've broken. And on the basis of the commands that you've broken, you are unrighteous. Question, how many people do you have to murder before you're a murderer? <laughs> see, see, I mean, you're not supposed to get like all summer on the mountain. Yeah. One, that'll work. One, one. Okay. Uh, if you keep, if you, if you break one, one time, and you go, well, you are condemned. You're condemned. Before God, every single person is condemned. Look what he says in chapter three. He goes on in chapter 3, and he says, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There it is. There's the verdict. Every single one of us is under sin. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile with no access to the Scriptures. Somewhere, you know, unreached and unengaged. You are condemned under uh, 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 under the wrath of God. But those of us who are here in the Bible Belt, and we've heard the scriptures ad nauseum, and we know all the Bible verses, and we know all the Christian cliches, and so on, but we are not obeying all that God has spoken. We, too, are under the wrath of God. There's no escape. Every single person is in this situation. 
That's why Paul can say in verse 10, quoting, quoting through the Old Testament and quoting various passages, none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks, uh, uh, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's where we are. Uh, Ron Jory, you said at the beginning that this was about the gospel of God. This is about the good news of God. Yeah, but in order for you to understand the good news, you've got to know how bad the bad news is. In order for you to really understand what God has done in Christ, you've got to understand how dire the situation is that every single one of us is in. There is no partiality with here. Nobody's a little bit higher up than another. Every single one of us is in the same boat. That's why the good news is so amazing. You cannot save yourself. Your righteousness cannot match the standard of the holy and righteous God. This is what uh, sparked on this day, uh, uh, how many, uh, 504 years ago, on this day, this is what sparked the movement that changed the world and changed the church. We call it the Protestant Reformation. What changed it was this switch in life when you said, it's not about me living up to God's standard. It's about me trusting in the only one who could. Jesus is the one who is able to do all that God required. And I don't trust in my own goodness and my own righteousness. Rather, in the obedience of faith, I trust in the one who perfectly obeyed for my sake. And that's why verse 21 is amazing. But now, <laughs> but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Note, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified. We are declared righteous by the judge. He looks at every single one of us with our broken records and so on. With our broken relationship with him and with each other and everything. And he looks at us and he says... With the gavel on the stand. And he says, I hereby declare you not just not guilty. Not just not guilty. He goes farther than that. I declare you righteous. Not just that you didn't do what was uh, the charges that you have against you. That's not guilty. But rather, you have done everything that I've required of you. You are righteous. And we say, how in the world could a righteous judge look at me with all of my sinfulness and look at you and all of your sinfulness and say, you are not just not guilty, you are righteous. Well, look what he does. You are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Faith. I trust that when Jesus died on the cross, he took my unrighteousness and put it on his shoulders and said, this is for you. I trust that when Jesus lived 33 years of life, perfectly obeying God's law, he was looking at us and said, this is for you. I trust that when he shed his blood, he satisfied the wrath of God, putting it upon himself and said, this is for you. And when he rose again from the dead, never to be under the clutches of death ever again, he said, this is for 
you. And I receive that by faith and trust him and say, yes, Jesus, this is true. You are my savior. You are my righteousness. My unrighteousness was taken from me and put on you. Your righteousness was placed on me. And God looks at me with all my badness and all my unrighteousness and all my sin and says, I'll remember it no more. All I see is the righteousness of my son. You are righteous. That's justification. That's what changed the world. When we realized it wasn't our righteousness, but it was Christ's righteousness given to us. So now you can be a Jew, you can be a Gentile, you can be black, you can be white, you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be from America, you can be from another country, you can be from the 21st century, you can be from the 16th century. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you would trust in Jesus, you will never again have to stand under the wrath of God. Jesus paid it all. Oh, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and his righteousness. You can have his record as yours. So this is how God demonstrates his righteousness. This is why this is good news of God. Because God is the one who makes it possible for sinners to be righteous. God is the one, as in chapter 4, verse 5, it says that he is the one uh, who justifies the ungodly. You say, how in the world can he do that? Because Jesus took our place. That's how he can do it. All of us are now righteous because of what God has done in Christ. Now, he's not only taken this righteousness and so on. You say, how do I get this righteousness? How, how does faith give me this righteousness from Christ. Well, chapter 5 begins a new section, and in chapter 5, what we realize is that God did something that we can't really explain, and it is incredibly hard to understand, but it is oh so true. And this is the reality for every single one of us who believe in Jesus. God took us, and he joined us to Jesus. Theologians call this union with Christ. So that everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. So that Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Well, I've been joined to Jesus, so I died on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus was buried. And so when Jesus was buried, I was buried with Jesus because I'm joined to Jesus. And Jesus rose from the dead. And so when he rose from the dead, I rose from the dead too because I've been joined to Jesus. See, We used to be joined to Adam first guy, right? All the way back in the Garden of Eden and everything. And when Adam sinned, 5.12 tells us, when Adam sinned, all of us sinned too. And when because all of us have sinned, death has spread through every single one of us because we're all connected to Adam. So Adam sinned, we sinned. Adam died, we die. You see? Uh, Adam is under the condemnation, we are under the condemnation because we're in Adam. But God, in his grace, has now taken some of us who are in Adam, and he has placed us now in Christ. So that whatever is true of Christ, our new head, now is true of us. We get all the blessings of God because we have been connected to Jesus. Well, you know, that sounds a little bit too good to be true, right? So if I have the righteousness of Christ, and I have the eternal life of Christ... And, and all of my sins have been taken away, past, present, and future. Sins that I'm going to commit in 2024, should I still be around in 2024, were paid for on the blood, uh, on the, uh, by the blood of Christ on the cross. Then, Paul, 
aren't you pretty much opening Pandora's box here? I mean, think about it. So, if I sin, if I sin tonight, I'm already forgiven of that sin. If I sin tomorrow, I'm already forgiven of that sin. I know my kids are going, for real? And that's exactly what, what's going on with Paul. There are these folks that are like, hold up, oh, wait a second. So you're telling me then that if all of my sins are paid for, then I could sin right now and I'd be forgiven of that sin, right? So why don't I just keep on going so that I can get more grace? Why don't I keep on going since, you know, I've got a new status. I'm in Christ. I'm in the grace of God and all that. And that's where chapter 6 comes in and Paul says, no, no, don't go there. Don't do that. All right. Remember the mega noitas, right? May it never be. Absolutely not. Stop it. Shut your mouth. Okay. That's not what, what, where this goes. Why? Because God is doing something fundamental in every single one of our lives. The point is is not just that you would legally be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. That's not where the story ends. The story continues with you actually being righteous and becoming righteous in your life. Let me say it another way. Because you are righteous, now you are expected to be righteous. Or let me say it another way. Now that you have obediently responded to the gospel by faith, now you live out the implications of that gospel with obedience. See? The obedience that, uh, uh, the obedient response of faith leads to the obedient result of faith. So that's why in chapter 6 he says, no, that's not what we do. When we died, we died with Christ. I'm not that person anymore. 6-4, we were buried with him by baptism into death. And he says, uh, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I live now a new life. The person that I was before Christ does not exist. He died. Ron Jor pre-Christ is dead. Okay? Uh, 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 Sean pre-Christ is dead. Kathy pre-Christ is dead. Annie pre-Christ is dead. Elijah pre-Christ is dead. Joshua pre-Christ is dead. He doesn't live anymore. Okay? When you look at my brother Gladman over there, you're not seeing Gladman who used to do all of these different things pre-Christ. I have no idea what you did pre-Christ. But whatever you did, I'm sure that, that it was, it, well, it was, it's gone now, right? <laughs> Whoever you were pre-Christ, you're not that person anymore. You died. We died. And the life that we live right now is the new resurrected life of Christ. So I don't sin now that I've got this free ticket to sin. No, I don't have a free ticket to sin. I have a free ticket to live. I have a free ticket now to live, to be what God created me to be, to enjoy the life that he has given me, free from the power of sin. And so what do we do now? What do we do now? Well, we struggle, don't we? We struggle. Because the reality is, 
my inner man is, is on the same page with the gospel. And I, and I want to live for Jesus. And I want to serve him. And I want to obey him. But the problem is I live with a real battle going on because there is a real part of me that wants nothing to do with this transformation. Every single one who has walked the Christian life knows exactly what we're talking about. I want to follow Jesus, but yet I don't. I want to love my neighbor, but yet I don't. Right? And I have this battle, what Paul talks about uh, in chapter 7, verses 14 and on. He says, I want to do you know, uh, good, but, but he says, I, I've got this, this flesh in verse 14. I'm of the flesh, I'm, and the flesh is sold under sin. So even, I, even though I have been set free to walk in the newness of life, I've got a flesh that's saying, no, I'm not letting go. I'm holding on to this, and I'm holding on to this all the way to the grave. And we fight and we battle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, I, uh, I beat my body into submission. In other words, I'm in a boxing match and the person in the other, uh, other corner of the ring is me. And I'm fighting against me now. And I've got to put me into submission. I want to blow up in, a, in an angry tirade on, on, on people. And, and, and I've got to beat that body, that flesh of mine, into submission and say, keep your mouth shut. And even then, my flesh is like, well, then I'll think it. Right? And, and I'm like, and I've got to fight this and say, stop it. That's not who you are. That's who I used to be. But that person is dead. Get on the program, flesh. It's a fight. And it's a struggle. But here's the amazing thing. I already know the outcome of this struggle. The outcome of the struggle is not that flesh will prevail. Flesh will not prevail. The outcome of the struggle is Christ will prevail. And as long as I am connected to the risen Christ, my flesh has an expiration date. There's coming a day not where my flesh is going to go to the grave and so on, and then I'll be free to live in my spirit forever and so on. No, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Christ is coming, and when Christ comes and the trumpet sounds, my dead body is going to rise from the dead, and it's going to rise incorruptible, never again uh, susceptible to sin, never again under the curse of death, never again will there be a struggle. In that final resurrection, I will be on the same page. All of me will be on the same page, and I will finally, eternally be whole. Oh, that day is coming. There is good news for us, church. Good news for every single one of us. Your struggle with sin. Your struggle with death. Your struggle with dying. Some of you have very, very serious physical ailments. Some of you know what it's like to be sinned against in this world. You have had to deal with years and years of residual effects from those sins. All of us know what it's like to sin. And we've dealt with the consequences of our sin over and over and over again. And we all know about the battle to fight over sin and to overcome these battles and overcome the effects of the fall in us and effects of the fall towards us and effects of the fall around us and all of this. We live in a country and in a planet where there are viruses and there are natural disasters and you can die a million different ways. And all of these days are numbered. There's coming a day where there will no longer be sin. There will no longer be sinning against. There will no longer be the curse of death and dying. One day, 
we will be finally free. This is the gospel of God. This is good news for the sake of his name among all the nations. So where are we heading? Well, in chapter 8, we start to get a little bit more of the hope that we have. The hope of resurrection. We get a little bit more of the hope of knowing that the Holy Spirit is inside of us and he is going to radically transform us. And we get the hope of knowing that absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we get the 9, 10, and 11, and we get a little bit more of the hope that extends far beyond you and me and so on. But a hope that will extend to all of the nations, even the people of Israel, even the Jewish people who have rejected their Messiah. There is coming a day where God is going to turn his affections on her again. And we get to see a little bit of the specifics of what it means to live this life. What it means to serve him well and love other people well. What it means to be in a community. What it means to live in a foreign land with governments and so on over us. And what it means to deal with the disagreements that we have when we don't see things eye to eye. And some people may see something as a moral issue and other people don't see it as a moral issue. And the Bible seems to be silent about it. How do we continue to live together in harmony and in peace when we have disagreements? The Bible is going to tell us all of that. And we can go there with the Lord in all of that because the Lord is already at work transforming us through the power of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. My prayer for every single one is that you would embrace this gospel. You would embrace the righteousness of Christ as your own. And that you would live like you are righteous because you are righteous for God in Christ. That you would live in the newness of life that Jesus has given us in his resurrection and in his death. And that you would struggle well. Fight all the way to the finish. Because our hope is secured in Christ. We will win the battle over sin. Amen. So this is an overview. The first seven chapters of Romans. I'm excited about where we're going in the next chapter, the next, uh, the rest of the chapters here in Romans. My prayer is that as we continue to walk, that we would walk faithfully, trusting in Christ, living in the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, that Christ will be glorified in every single one of us, and his name may be praised in all the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would indeed work in every single one of us. May we live out the, the rich truths of this gospel, foretold by the prophets, revealed through the apostles, lived out in us even today. Father, I pray that we who have been declared righteous by Christ would be righteous in Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we go forward, that we would see the effects of this gospel clearer and clearer in our lives. May we encourage each other keep trusting in the gospel. Keep moving forward. And I pray, Lord, that in the end of days, when our redemption is complete, that we could look to you and say, you did it all. All glory, all praise, all honor go to the one true living and reigning.
give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people say.